Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history, lovingly researched and recorded by your hosts, Margot and Sonia. Hi, my name is Margot, and I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on Indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. This week, we are joined by not one, but two excellent guests who are going to guide us through the history of May Day and the labor movement more broadly. Take it away, special guests. Um, um, my name is Godfrey de Rosé Lauzon. Uh, I teach American history at several places, including University of Montreal. I'm uh, David Tuff. I teach Canadian history and Canadian studies um, at Trent University. Excellent. So how did we, we are so prepared for this. <laughs> All right. We will sorry, just... <laughs> All right. So I have some just general questions that I'm going to ask because, uh, well, I'm a medieval historian. So to me, when I think of May Day, you know, it means like, oh, yes, the first day of spring where people are celebrating the return of flowers and plants. But that obviously has a very different connotation when we're talking about, you know, Canadian and American history in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, so if we could, if, if you two would like to explain exactly what May Day is for, you know, people people out there like me who are perhaps not, not yet enlightened um, or who have only recently become enlightened. <laughs> okay. Um, David, you want to go first? I, I can battle yeah, about I, this. For I imagine we're going to have a potentially slightly different answers because of our different uh, cultural contexts. So, I mean, I think that for uh, certainly for an English Canadian audience, what what needs to be explained is the difference between Labor Day, which is much more widely known and, and officially celebrated versus May Day. Yes. So uh, Labor Day reflects um, a celebration of organized labor in a particular post-war context. Right. You know, the the, the Rand formula, which recognized um the legitimacy of unions as part of the social social order as a kind of legitimate social institution. Um, and so that, that exists in a kind of skeletal form now, um, much, much less than it, than it did at, at its institutionalization in the, in the post-war period. But May Day is an older celebration of the working class and of a kind of a revolutionary spirit and a, a socialist tradition or, or broadly left uh, tradition of, of overturning the social order. And I'm not an early modernist or medievalist, but I'm sure that someone who is good at all that stuff could trace it all back to um, what you're talking about, about the, uh, the celebration of spring. I remember um, growing up in Ottawa in the 70s, I remember kids dancing around the Maypole. Mm -hmm. um, and thinking that that was the that was you know carried over through this British um, kind of uh, pre-Christian celebration of, of spring. So so there's there's some story to be told there about about the the 
the, the celebration of spring, the celebration of uh, the overthrow of um, kind of um, uh, kind of broken, uh, dying social order and replacing it with something more lively and so on. So there's something there. And we, we often associate political upheavals with spring. You know, we've seen that several mm -hmm. times recently. So there's something there, but I, I can't exactly tease it out. Uh, being a, a historian of the 20th century, I can only sort of point towards it, its probable existence. <laughs> no, fascinating. I'd like to, yeah. you know, Perhaps one day put those pieces together uh, if we'd like to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think. Um... Uh, yeah, there's this there's this story that 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 we teach in 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 classes on U.S. history or labor history. Of course, there's a there's a movement for the eight hour day uh, in 1886, which culminated culminated in a series of demonstrations and uh, and, and parades and, and and protests in the American labor movement. Uh, in Chicago specifically, uh, the, 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 the then ongoing uh, uh, strikes happening in Chicago turned violent around May Day 1886. And, uh, and later, a couple days afterwards, uh, a protest meeting uh, organized, called by anarchists groups in Chicago, most of the anarchist uh, militants in Chicago were uh, German-speaking. Not most, but a lot of the uh, anarchist movement in the U.S. was of associated with uh, foreign-born communities, including uh, German immigrants. And so, uh, on that, uh, I can't I can't remember if it was specifically on May Day that that anarchist protest at the end of the day uh, ended up with a bomb detonating in the middle of a group of police persons, uh, a group of policemen, resulting in a kind of police riot, the police uh, chasing, chasing militants uh, uh, in the surrounding streets, uh, shooting at people indiscriminately. And, and this ended in a, in, a, in, a, in a very nasty political trial like eight or nine union leaders in the Chicago area, several mm -hmm. of them, several of them uh, with foreign sounding names, European, middle, central European sounding names being tried for inciting a riot mm -hmm. while not having been physically present and not being part of the groups that had called the, that had, that had, that had called the, the protest meeting. That, that had where where the violence had happened um so and so this was taken up this 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 particular uh, this particular event was taken up yeah, was turned into a commemoration by the socialist international right by the international organization of socialist parties it turned into a national holiday in the soviet union so there is a strong cold war dichotomy between May Day and, and Labor Day that, uh, that, that David just evoked at the beginning of his answer. Right. So when we're talking about, you know, this idea of Labor Day versus May Day um, in terms of, you know, these sorts of um, political movements, you talk about how Labor Day is much more focused on, you know, unions, whereas it seems like May Day is more 
focused on more so revolutionary politics and somewhat more radical politics. And I would say that that distinction between unions and radical politics is a, is a particular, mm -hmm. belongs to a particular period, right? So, yes. that, so um, the, the, if you talk about the late 19th and early 20th century, that Godefroy was just referencing, the unions were part of a, um, a, a movement for radical change. There, right. there were always craft unions, there were always conservative unions, but... Um, so the, the, the distinction really is, a, as Godefroy says, it's a Cold War distinction. Mm -hmm. It's a distinction of a period in which the labor movement was really embraced as part of North, uh, North America, in North America in particular, embraced as part of the, you know, the, the dominant social order. Yes. Um, thinking of, you know, I, I'm uh, speaking to you from Peterborough. In Peterborough, mm -hmm. we had General Electric, we had a Quaker Oats factory, we had yep. all these um, major employers that were, uh, you know, people had softball teams, they had scholarships to go to university. Everyone who lives in this neighborhood that I'm in, which is a, a post-war suburb, 50s suburb, was all people who worked in General Electric or in right. one of the other factories in the South End. So that's, it reflects a particular time in which labor unions were to a large extent, General Electric's um, labor union was actually uh, communist, was, was mm -hmm. fairly, fairly radical in the post-war period, but in general, in, uh, in English Canada in the post-war period, there was a, a, a period of labor peace where the major unions were sort of incorporated into the, into the social order. Right. And not, and not opposed to it quite as much. Right. And I actually did want to ask about this as the 20th century, right, progresses along. When do we start to really see this, you know, I, I don't want to say breakdown of unions, essentially, and sort of the breaking of union power, really, because I mean, you know, as, as you say, you look at post-war, I mean, especially English Canada and in the United States as well. It's very, you know, union jobs. And, and then it sort of seems to taper, taper off and to, to where we are now, where it's very much, you know, the kind of quote unquote gig economy. And how did we, how, how did we get there? Hmm. Yeah. I, 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 I suppose the, the go-to catchphrase is neoliberalism, but mm -hmm. that, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be very historical of us uh, <laughs> just sticking to that, <laughs> just dying on that hill. Um, there, there, there was, there, but there was actual, you know, economic, long-term economic shift from uh, full-time, full-time jobs, unionized jobs, to, unionized jobs to, towards, uh, towards part-time white-collar uh, gig economy, service economy, service sector jobs in, 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 in places of employment that were less likely uh, to be unionized. Uh, but there are, there, are, there are several local shifts as well. Um, in Quebec, my friend, my good friend Martin Petitclerc did a, did a superb book about the history of special labor legislation. Mm -hmm. So you see this shift happening in the 70s under a so-called social democratic 
nationalist government under the PQ government, you see, you see the government increasingly seeing itself, positioning itself as an employer mm-hmm. itself. So when trouble happened in the public sector, in the public sector, in public sector unions, you see, you see, you see government coming down increasingly harshly with back to work legislation, special legislation, bringing the bringing employers, employees back to work. Now that doesn't mean that public sector workers are de-unionized, you know, uh, that, that, that unionization of, of public sector worker decreases, but certainly globally, the, the, the position of, the, of, public institutions, the position of governments, is in, it becomes increasingly anti-union as the 1980s proceed. Uh, and, and this is carried in, the, in public opinion by, by conservative victories uh, at the provincial level and the federal level leading to well you see privatization of, of privatization of, of, of public businesses um, and a, 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 a fragmentation of the labor movement the labor movement being being with decreasing efficiency able to speak with one voice and and, and threaten the the the, the and threaten the public order with widespread, strikes okay um so right. there is a there is a broad there is a broad narrative of decreasing decreasing unity and decreasing political power of the union uh, movement in 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 canada uh, wholesale and in quebec particularly yeah i think there's a major shift in the 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 focus of unions and the power base of unions because of deindustrialization and the shift to a service economy and, and, a, and, a, and a white collar, uh, predominantly white collar workforce. So the post-war period is um, in, in English Canada, at least there's, you know, fairly high union density, but a lot of the unions are international unions. So they're, they're uh, American branch plants, just like the companies, just like the employers are American branch plants. The unions are also American branch plants. Mm-hmm. So what happens in the 60s and 70s is that there's a, a kind of nationalist movement, particularly in Quebec, but also in English Canada that develops new forms of, of unions that are there's a debate in English Canada about how effective this was, but it kind of the the white collar unions that emerge in this period, you know, QP, OPSU, and so on, are very much tied to um, uh, a social democratic nationalist vision of the country, kind of thing, which which um, struggles against an emerging neoliberal idea. So in this in the 70s, as everything kind of the Keynesian post-war period starts to kind of fall apart. The American, the America is very clearly in the 70s reeling from the defeat in Vietnam, Watergate. So America loses a lot of its um, moral power that it had for certain certain people in 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 Canada in English Canada in the post-war period sort of the, the, it becomes a, a mainstream opinion that Canada needs to be less tied to America and so there's a push against um, uh, 
so that there becomes a kind of uh, a kind of battle between nationalist versus continental forces, and the unions very much side with the nationalists and are defeated in the eighties in the in the free trade um, in the free trade election in uh, nineteen eighty eight, and so. Um, similar process that the the public sector unions are very much tied to nationalism but in comparison to Quebec the public sector unions are much much weaker and much more um, conservative in in English Canada because the power of that um, anti-union belief is so much stronger in uh, I think in uh, in English Canada than in than in Quebec. So even when we see um, uh, when we see social democratic governments like the Ray government elected in Ontario, its mm-hmm. primary focus in the you know the the very early '90s is on um, uh, weakening public sector unions and bringing public sector unions to heel. So yeah. um, and you know we see a similar process with a very uh, uh, ham-fisted extreme attempts by the Mulroney government to institute neoliberalism that encounter huge resistance. And then uh, when the, uh, the federal liberals are, are elected in the early 90s, we see a lot of the same policies introduced with much less resistance because they are coded as being kind of necessary for preserving um, preserving society as we know it kind of thing that that, that, that there's uh, the existential threat of the debt and and so on so in order to save um, the Chrétien and Martin liberals were saying essentially in order to save Canada we have to gut all of our social programs and and uh, cut federal federal provincial transfers and, um, so all those things kind of undermine um, the power of unions and the respect for the public sector and the respect for um, for all, all those values, and so the the labor movement becomes much more um, marginal so- socially um, and reflects generally reflects um, in in the English Canadian social context. It tends to reflect a certain amount of social capital that you belong to a union. You have a yeah. you have a good union job. You work for, you work for um, a hospital, or you work for a university, or you work for a government, and you have mm-hmm. a union job. And it's very unlikely that you have much more like much less likely that you have a union job if you work in the private sector and you don't have any education and so on. Which so it's kind of a flip of the immediate post-war period. Right. Well done. Well said. Yeah. Very well said. I, I do also wonder how, I mean, you've explained very, very well how kind of the governments use this and leverage um, this, you know, neoliberalism in order to basically break the power of these unions and of, you know, the labor movement in general in a lot of ways. But I, I am also wondering how, how did they manage to kind of convince the public to sort of go along with this? I I ask this as someone who, you know, I mean, my family, like uh, all the way through, it's just been like union, union, union. So like, for me, it's just bizarre to think of like, why would you oppose 
being in a union. Who would not want that? But, you know, clearly you've got enough people, like you've got enough of the public on board with this to yeah. think that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's part of the, it, 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 it's, it, it's part of the cultural history. We, we mm-hmm. historians are, are still grappling with this and still, you know, submitting, uh, 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 su- submitting research projects based on explaining that because the dreadful end result uh, uh, is of course the far the rise of the far right in yeah. uh, in the working class in the yeah. so-called or what's left of the working class in North America right it's not it's not only uh, 2015 2016 here's the here's the the campaign that led Donald Trump to power it's not mm-hmm. it's not just that it's it's happening also here uh, to an extent uh, oh, to yeah. an extent, the 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 the, the coalition Avenir Quebec government in Quebec mm-hmm. is reaping the benefits of uh, of this anti-union, anti-government um, yeah. uh, sentiment uh, yeah. having having grown in having grown in the working class in the blue collar uh, classes. It's also happening in the UCP, uh, leading to the UCP government in, and and it, and its policies in in Alberta and mm-hmm. and, and, and and in Ontario. The, 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 oh, yeah. the Ontario Conservatives, of course, <laughs> increasingly towing the line of uh, towing the line of um, of uh, towing that that particular line, moving to the right, shifting to the right. And it's it's so it's a mystery. It's largely it's largely a, it's largely a mystery to to the historical community. Uh, but something that something that that is rooted in deindustrialization, something mm-hmm. that is rooted in the ah the media landscape and and i'm not talking only about social media but before social media there was such a thing as a, a, a commercial media landscape and and a, and, a, and a public media and a public yes. news organizations being open to being open to this idea of fiscal restraint of saving the welfare state from itself of Talking down at uh, uh, welfare frauds and 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 what what what's not responsible for uh, for the the for uh, the poor state of the the, the public deficits and, and 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 so on. It's a it's a it's a mystery. We have to talk this through here and right. in, the, in the historical community. Yeah, I mean, I think deindustrialization is is a huge part of the story however however we end up telling the story deindustrialization is a huge part of the story because it it really fragments the working class to the extent that potentially we can't talk about the working class we have to talk about you know working class individuals Mm -hmm. which is that is that um are we surrendering to a neoliberal view or are we acknowledging an actual social reality that that we aren't you know, that in uh, looking around Peterborough and thinking about um, people that I know in Peterborough, it's much more likely now that somebody um, will have, uh, a young man will have a truck and will have mm-hmm. a bunch of tools in the truck and will, you know, work some job, sort of like a, a blue collar gig, gig economy that he'll mm-hmm. have some work doing something for a little while and then he'll have some work doing something. And he's, he's, not, uh, he's not in business, he's just sort of wandering around doing doing work yeah. um, 
I remember reading a story, I saw um, uh, a thread about going to Fort McMurray. And if you were, you know, if you were headed to a job in Fort McMurray, what did you need? And people said, you just need a truck. Yeah. Get a truck and drive out to Fort McMurray. And so when people look around and say, you know, people like me will look around and say like, why do all these young guys have trucks? Like, it's so irritating that there's these huge trucks everywhere in, in small towns in Ontario. And a mm-hmm. huge part of it is that that's what it's like having a computer. If you're a, if you're a white collar worker, having your own laptop and going to a cafe and sitting with your laptop and doing yeah. your, your gig economy, you know, marking your essays or writing your, uh, <clears throat> writing your communications stuff. So we have to think about the 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 possibility that the working class is so fractured that it that it, it doesn't it, it has to be kind of remade if it's going to be any kind of um, social force again. Um, <clears throat> and I think there's also a, a very successful uh, Godfrey talked about the media effect. So there's a huge, very successful process of demonizing uh, marginalized people. As yes. sort of the this what what a more sociological perspective would say, the symptoms of the system are uh, uh, reframed by the media as the cause of the system. You know, yes. uh, petty petty crime, uh, drug addiction, um, sex work, um, all these kinds of things are, are seen as sort of the the undermining of the social order, as opposed to being a kind of expression of. Of, of what's happened to the social order. Uh, and there's also a gender element that if you look at the, uh, the post-war period, the wealth, the way that the welfare state developed in the post-war period and the way that the labor movement was in the post-war period, it very much was a male-dominated, um, focused on um, a male bread, breadwinner uh, family model. Mm-hmm. And as that starts to break down in the 70s and 80s, um, for various reasons, you know, uh, positive and negative effects that happen in the 70s and 80s, that you uh, start to have to have sort of boutique social programs, social programs that deal with much more specific problems. Mm-hmm. And so do you have those those uh, social programs in addition to the social programs you already have, or do they replace those social programs? So a really good example is the family allowances, the baby bonus checks that yep. emerged in the in the immediate post-war period. And when they when they first went out in the post-war period, they were quite it was quite a substantial amount of money. So a lot of very poor households um, suddenly uh, didn't need to be on social assistance. For instance, they could mm-hmm. they could uh, have enough from social assistance that they didn't need to be on welfare. Um, I've spoken to people. Um, who grew up on uh, Curve Lake, the reserve north of Peterborough, who said that the family allowance checks had a, a profound effect on the wealth of the community, that that yeah. amount of money coming into the community was really noticeable. So by yeah. the time you get to the 60s and 70s, they haven't really increased the amount of money. Uh, the cost of living has gone up. So it's kind of like, well, it's kind of such a small amount of money and we're giving it to everyone. So we're giving it to people who own their homes, who have good union jobs. So there's this whole discourse about, you know, the average person doesn't need to have this money. So uh, let's make it a a targeted program. So there's -hmm. there's that process too, that the welfare state becomes most of the parts of the welfare state uh, that 
help everyone and affect everyone become constricted. Medicare right. is the, always the big exception, the big outlier. But most parts of the social, social welfare state that are still active by the late 80s and early 90s are targeted to marginalized groups. Right. Uh, and so it's much easier to say, you know, if you're, if you're a, a male uh, member of the working class, you don't belong to a union, you don't benefit from any social programs. So what are you paying taxes for? You're paying taxes that are going towards um, things that don't benefit you, that maybe don't, maybe don't reflect your, your values. Mm -hmm. And so there's that, that beginning of a, um, a facilitated, again, by the press in, in English Canada, the Sun, um, Sun Networks, the, the Toronto, Toronto Sun, the Vancouver Sun, the Calgary Sun, yeah. uh, really push this idea that the working class man is um, being, um, all of his income is being taken away and being given to women and being given to children and being given to immigrants and being given to indigenous people. And, and so that really, uh, uh, it's a very different characterization of the welfare state. Um, and so it's, it's very easy then to demonize that and say, you know, um, if you're a progressive person say, well, it would be nice if we could do all that stuff, but we can't afford to anymore. And if you're kind of mm -hmm. a jerk, then you say, well, you know, why should I do that? Why should I pay for that? And why are they taking my money? So that's a huge part of it is just demonizing um, those marginalized groups and, and characterizing the welfare state as being essentially a transfer to, to mm -hmm. people who are um, socially mm -hmm. marginalized. Yeah. The, the 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 gender analogies are are are, are powerful tools to analyze mm -hmm. to the gen, gender gen, the gender uh, worldview gen, the gendered worldview is, is powerful to understand these things. Uh, I'm also thinking about the constant to this day uh, inability to understand public finance, right? <laughs> to understand to understand deficits, to understand tax and and borrowing for public endeavors for public services to this day even on on public radio you get these very gendered uh, representations of of public finance as a as a household as mm -hmm. some kind of household mm -hmm. finance right you have to balance the budget you have to you have to you have to 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 you have to you you, you should not Go in debt, in uh, because going in going into debt would 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 in debt would would put into trouble future generations, and blah blah blah. This is this is pre, this is all over the all over the news. I mean, I've been I've been hearing some sort of some sort of uh, over over the over the radio over CBC radio. I've been hearing that kind of comment just just days ago. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, definitely interesting hearing those kinds of takes that oh going into debt is terrible and it's so bad yet you know we are all encouraged to well of course you should buy a house and get a mortgage buy a car and get a car loan go to school take on student debt so yeah. it, it is this very uh you know i mean it doesn't make sense you know, just financially, but also even in the analogies that tend to be used of, oh, well, your household budget needs to be balanced. And it's like, <laughs> but everyone is in debt. Yeah. E essentially, you're going to be, the average household is 
in debt. What are you talking about? Like most people don't own their house, their car and have their education paid off outright. It's just not reasonable in our society, the way we've structured it. And it, this it seems economy. exactly in this economy, <laughs> I think I can be debt free. <laughs> Get out of here. And I oh, actually, and, and the, oh, no, no, those sorry. things are encouraged too. Like those yeah. things are, those are the ways of, that we're invited to. It's not, um, it's not that those things are problems that we fall into. That's that's mm-hmm. how we're expected to do these things. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody is expected to buy a house outright. And even if you had the money to buy a house outright, I think a lot of people would say, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Get a mortgage, build your credit. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a, there's a, uh, uh, we're, we're interpolated. We're invited to think of ourselves as people who take on debt as part of, you know, that's part of adulting is that you have yeah. this huge, these huge amounts of debt, which mean that your, your life is conditioned by those things, right? So mm-hmm. you make decisions as a student, you make decisions knowing that your employability is going to reflect your ability to, uh, is going to determine your ability to pay your, uh, pay back your, your debt and your, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the States, there's these, all these discussions about, um, about Medicare versus uh, medical care that's employer, that's covered by your employer. Yeah. And, um, and from a Canadian perspective, I have to confess that I didn't think about this, but somebody said, you know, this a huge part of this is about labor power. Yeah. That if you if you have publicly funded Medicare, then you don't have to stay in your crappy job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas if, if you have medical care, if you have a medical condition or you have a, a, a dependent that has a medical condition, you just have to keep going to that job and taking whatever bullshit the the employer is giving you because the alternative is that you have no medical coverage. Oh yeah. It's also really, I'm an American moving to Canada was the most wild experience of the, the relief (laughs) of a stress that I didn't know I had my entire life. Yeah. Um, Like I got a sinus infection in my first winter here and was like, meh, it's fine. It's probably just a cold. And every Canadian was like, you have a fever, go to a doctor. And I was like, but doctors are expensive. And I went to a doctor and walked out without paying anything and like went to get my prescription. I was like, this is the greatest moment of my whole life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, And I'm a Canadian currently living in the U S because I'm It's terrifying. Yeah. I'm married to an American and we're waiting on his immigration to Canada to go through. So we're splitting our time between the two countries right now. Um, and yeah, it's just like, what do you, what do you mean you got a cut on your hand and you've got some like janky stitches? They're not even dissolving stitches. They're like needle and thread stitches. And it costs 700 American dollars for this. And it's just baffling. <laughs> it's like, how do you get off charging that for like five little stitches that are, oh. It was ridiculous. But I, yeah, uh, that's uh, always a fun topic here. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to this um, idea of the, the ch- sort of changing concept of who is a worker and who is in the working class, because I do want to touch on how we all know each other. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we can pitch that for me yeah. as well. Yes. Because um, so, you know, we're talking about the early labor movement. 19th century and the the worker is the industrial worker the 
the the new wage worker, the new sort of day laborer. And as the 20th century progresses and, you know, computers and deindustrialization and this so much of our work being like knowledge based, who is a worker, the, the aesthetics and idea around that changes. And I'm wondering if you guys can speak to that and maybe talk about how how we all how we all know each other and Paul maybe <laughs> if you want to do that I don't know <laughs> I hear I I hear I I see we see and read a lot of you know, especially since the pandemic began we mm -hmm. see we see a lot of talk about worker essential workers heroes mm -hmm. um, uh, and and all of a sudden these workers are a lot a lot more gendered. Uh, as as female or mm -hmm. non non male um, uh, and, and 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 foreign born and or 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 or, or son or daughter of of, of immigrants, mm -hmm. which is refreshing, <laughs> because, yeah. because we see okay okay workers are you know people at the grocery store who not, who are people people in in the hospital system in the in the in the in the health system doing essential work and, and all the more essential uh, as the pandemic, uh, since the pandemic began. Be began. But um, so yeah, there's us, <laughs> <laughs> yes. which, which, leads us to, which leads us to us. We are uh, either students or precariously employed academic workers. Yeah. And uh, there's this, of course, there's this, perpetual tension between the job market uh, in, un in universities uh, uh, in North America being the job prospects being terrible mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and but there's still there's there's still hope we're being we're, we've been we've been schooled in uh, at the graduate as graduate students uh hoping expecting a full-time job you know when when we were when we'd be done with our phds right uh but the job market is still terrible <laughs> i am stuck in 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 the gig economy teaching courses here and there um for 15 years now since uh yeah since 2005 my first teaching gig was in 2005 and it was uh, it was as a student uh mm -hmm. at the university of ottawa when, uh, during my, my my phd um and so and so we're there powerless hoping some a lot of us hoping for a tenure track job at the university level and not getting it and trying to well looking at each other's situation and sometimes 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 glancing uh, 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 over our shoulders and seeing all, the, all uh, uh, seeing all this I, I'm not sure I'm not sure how to put it here maybe uh, someone wants to jump in we see we 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 we, we we've noticed recently uh that where that there are thousands of us out there mm -hmm. who need to see each other to have our voices heard in universities in professional associations in the union movement because we're not an easy cohort to unionize and organize we need to build solidarity 
as precariously employed academic workers. That's the beginning. <laughs> That's just the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that there's, I, I was thinking about this this morning, that struggling with thinking about worker as a class category mm-hmm. and uh, as a relationship with, a, with an employer. So I find it very easy to think about myself as a worker when I think about my relationship with my employer. Mm-hmm. Um, that I'm essentially laid off every four months and I have to reapply every four months, despite being a highly skilled, highly trained, um, you know, I'm trained in exactly the system that I'm teaching. And it's not like Mm -hmm. there's some sort of misfit between those things. Um, And I interact as a peer with my, with the people who are making employment decisions. about me. So I have a very, very clear conception. Um, this term, for instance, this summer term, I don't have any work. I'm going to be on uh, uh, employment insurance, as we call it now, as opposed mm-hmm. to unemployment insurance. Um, and so I have a very, it's very easy for me to understand myself as a worker. And when I talk mm-hmm. to people who work, um, work in construction or who work in the service industry or, um, other things that are maybe easier to immediately understand as being uh, being working class, I, I relate in terms of my forms of employment, mm-hmm. but it's very difficult because I was raised, I, I grew up in a, in a wealthy suburb of Ottawa. My parents had a cottage. Um, mm-hmm. It, um, what, what, what else can I say about my class background? So I, I grew up with books everywhere in the house. There was never any question that I would go to university. Uh, I didn't have to scrimp and save to go to university. I did have jobs, but my parents paid the most of, most of my university for the first few years. And then I took on uh, student loans, confidently thinking that I would be highly employable mm-hmm. as, a, as a clever upper middle class uh, kid, thinking that I would be highly employable. I ended up going to school for years and years and years. I finished my PhD in my 40s and I had a huge amount of debt and went into a horrible job market. Um, And so despite being a very promising uh, PhD student, I was published, I was going to conferences, I was very well known among my peers. Mm -hmm. And I've just, I've had had zero um, job interviews. So, the and there are many terms in which there are just no jobs even as a contract instructor for me Mm -hmm. right so um i have to wait and see what pops up um that i can apply for and this summer nothing nothing is popping up so um so when we think of ourselves as contract instructors we 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 have to kind of separate what we think of as our as our social position Mm-hmm. Uh, which is maybe exactly the same. Maybe the the way we grew up is exactly the same as our friends who who are making employment decisions about us. Um, and it's you know it's possible, although the statistics tell us otherwise, it's possible that that person came from uh, a less privileged background, and so the the person. Um, the the person who's now in a secure place of employment and essentially in a quasi management position, you know, in a, mm-hmm. in a small department um, speaking, you know, my employer is Trent university, which is a small university. So some departments have, you know, two or three 
permanent members and they hire seven or eight uh, contract instructors. So you could argue that they're actually more managers than they are employees. Mm-hmm. They belong to a union in their relationship with the, with the employer, but they're also, they're also employees, they're also employers. They're um, evaluating teaching, they're deciding um, who, who uh, will be hired on a, what courses will be offered, which essentially in a fairly closed environment, you know, when you offer, when you decide to offer a course in a department, you, usually have a very good sense of who's actually going to teach that course. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of, there's a kind of um, bullshit thinking that goes into that, that they say, we want somebody, an exceptional scholar to teach blah, 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 blah. It's like, well, I think you already know that there's only like three people who actually work here. And so one of those people is going to teach this and, <clears throat> if there was a permanent position, you probably wouldn't give it to that person, but you know that, you know, that person already teaches here and they're probably going to teach the course. Um, uh, so that's a very long winded way of saying that, that we, we really, it is a struggle to think of ourselves as workers, partly because we think of the social position of workers as being people who are, you know, solidly, uh, solidly denied access to the perks of the middle class, right. whereas the, the, there's more sort of social porousness between those things. Mm-hmm. For instance, you can, be, um, you can be a fairly prominent uh, writer and social commentator and still make, not make enough money to pay back your student loans or ever buy a house. Which, from a, you know, if you think about that from a mid 20th century perspective, that would be very hard to imagine that somebody could have published numerous books and be um, uh, be well known as an authority on a subject and and not be able to make a living at it. Yeah, so actually, oh, oh, never mind. No, I just really did want to um, have just a, as an aside. You you talk about you know this um, you know this this dichotomy, this sort of tension between what we think of as working class and what we think of as middle class. And I did want to talk about the mm-hmm. way that rhetoric is used because we use it in a very you know it it had a pretty clear meaning in the 19th century right like you're middle class if you own the factory or if you are you know a doctor or a lawyer and you have your own practice and everybody else is a worker mm-hmm. but we kind of see this term expand now where you know there's just this constant rhetoric around like the middle class the shrinking middle class we need to save the middle class and it's like what is the middle class nowadays? If you, yeah, <laughs> you I mean, know, it, it feels like yeah. argument that it doesn't exist, that it's yeah. working class, professional, managerial class, and yeah. then the uber wealthy. So. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> I know I've opened a can of worms here, but I just really wanted yeah. to get, I, you know, you started talking about middle class. And I'm like, oh man, got to open this one. <laughs> Yeah, okay. so I think the the myth of the middle class is the real. Uh, I think it's a real sticking point for a lot of people because we don't want to, you know. There's this idea of well, I own a house, so I can't be working class. And you're like, or, you have or to sell your house that. to yeah. pay for your retirement. How are you? Yeah. How is that not working class? You work yeah. for somebody or, or else. Or other people day. will say that. Other people will. Somebody will say, "Well, I'm working class," and they'll say, "Well, you own a house, so you can't be working class." Yeah. Yep. Like, well, 
So do you want to take this, Godfrey? Um, I, I have a little to say about it. <laughs> I think, I think it, it ties into how do we tell the story uh, of work, um, mm -hmm. of people working for the last, for the past 70 years, let's say since the war. Um, it ties into this, how we want to tell the story of work culture and how we think, how people think they belong to, um, to a specific class, to a specific place in, in the capitalist economy. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a problem that is still being researched and, and written about. Um, it's obviously uh, tied into harsh, terrible questions about about what happened to the working class, what, whatever happened to the working class, whatever happened to uh, industrial work, what is, what, it, what power can there still be in identifying as a class of worker when, when work in, in the media is being seen as increasingly feminized, uh, assumed by gig, gig workers, assumed by, by minority members of visible minorities, as we like to say in Canada. Uh, and and um, yeah, so yeah, I, I, I don't have an easy, uh, an easy touch for it. I like uh, seeing myself, for example, seeing myself as a, a rent, renting, a, renting an apartment in, in, a, in the overheated job market, uh, in the, the overheated uh, real estate market here in Montreal. I can consider myself not being middle class because I can't afford a home in Montreal. But this is obviously useless because we work from a reference, uh, reference period in the 50s where everybody with a, a full-time job could afford, a, could afford to buy a, a home. Well, not, not everybody. I'm sorry, a lot of, the, the <laughs> members of the white minority, male-headed families could afford, could afford a, to buy a home in the 50s. And we're moving, uh, moving at an accelerated pace towards a, a system where only rentier, the uh, rentier class and, and retired, retired persons and investors can afford to buy homes in this superheated uh, real estate market. Yeah. That's just one example. Yeah. yeah, I think that the the ambiguity, I would say that there's a, a two-stage ambiguity. So there's the post-war period in which working class, elements of the working class had such access to um, social, up, to upward mobility for their, for their children, to, their children could go to university and uh, to home ownership. Um, you know, speaking of from a Southern Ontario perspective, the the amounts of housing that was built in the in the 40s and, and 50s and 60s, it just flooded the market with uh, with available real estate. And so a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of factory workers and tradespeople were able to buy homes in that particular period. And so those people then had. Um, a certain amount of identity uh, struggles around their identity because their children grew up um, watching TV, going to summer camp, um, or going to their their grandparents' cottage or grandparents' place in the country where they had grown up. So they they um, 
they had a lot of the same markers as as um, tr- sort of true middle class kids, the, the, the kids of, um, of lawyers and doctors and so on. <clears throat> so there becomes a kind of ambiguity in there for a few years where certain elements of the working class become develop some of the markers of the middle class and especially their children become kind of um, uh, absorbed into the into the middle class. Right. Um, and my dad, thinking of my dad, my dad was the first in his uh, first in his family to go to university, and he became extremely successful. So we, I grew up in an environment where my dad and all of his friends were university educated, had extremely um, uh, successful careers with a liberal arts uh, background. So this is kind of for my parents. This is kind of the norm. This is what happens in your life. Um, and so what happens in the 70s and 80s is that that starts to disintegrate, that, that, um, that stability starts to disintegrate. But to a large extent, that home ownership becomes the, the foundation for later home ownership. So people that I know um, <clears throat> who bought houses um, around or just after 2000, they didn't have the ability to buy it on their own. They had to get a co-signer or um, somebody had to sell a house in order to give them a down payment. So there's a kind of chain effect that people whose families bought a, bought their home in the 1940s or 1950s or 1960s, that home ownership is the only, is the only part source of wealth. As, as you said, Sonia, you know, if you have to sell your house to retire, yeah. What if you have to sell your house in order for your children or your grandchildren to have a house? Yeah. So um, in the working class communities that I know in Southern Ontario, home ownership is still fairly common because people are able to to use their parents or their grandparents' home ownership. Right. So it doesn't really reflect their earning abilities. Mm-hmm. It reflects the the uh, what you would call inter- intergenerational wealth, mm-hmm. but without the connotations that, you know, this is a, 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 there's not a rentier class. This is people who were just able to buy a home for their family in the fifties and sixties yeah. on the basis of working at, at GM or general electric or something. Right. And now are able to, to provide their, their grandchildren with a, with a home. Um, so that's created. So are those people, people who own a home, but work in the gig economy, maybe, you know, and the, um, uh, maybe the one person has a, an Instagram account, is an Instagram influencer. So is that person working class or middle class? You know, they're, they are, they're presenting a, an image of themselves as being, you know, successful as having a home, they have a backyard, they have good toys for their kids, and they maybe they make videos about, about the toys that they have for their kids. So are those people working class or middle class that, that we're into a very, very uncertain place in terms of, you know, as you said, Sonia, the, the, the categories become broken down. And so both the effect of expanding the middle class, creating this kind of phony middle class in the mid 20th century, and then the disintegration of that class, we've ended up with absolute chaos of social categories. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I want to ask a, another question as well of sort of going back to taking these ideas that we've just talked about back to the academy. Um, because I, I want to get 
y'all's point of view on how how this like destabilization affects academia from two sides. So both from the point of view of us as workers and that like tenuous stability as workers. And then also as for the academy as a cultural institution, the ability to produce like cultural works and educate future students, how this precarity affects that as well. Hey. <laughs> uh, it builds. It's a very big question. <laughs> Sorry. It, it, it certainly academic employment and the things we are trained to do and the mm -hmm. the the emulation and the the mentorship structure right between between uh, tenure track professors and mm -hmm. and grad students especially but but also undergrads creates tremendous creates this tremendous cultural unity. And that's part of the that's part of the cultural history of the working class, to be sure. You know, going to the university makes you was was supposed to make you middle class culturally, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I now <laughs> we 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 have to as as precarious workers not seeing the not seeing a tenure uh, not seeing ourselves lending a tenure track job anytime soon we have to disentangle ourselves from from this solidarity with our oppressors <laughs> our friend, our friend, uh, our and colleague uh, Jeremy Milloy, in a recent series of uh, webinars, said said you have to give up hope, and David re rephrased it as well in the same in the same series of webinars. You wanna you wanna take up take up what you've what you've brought to this uh, seminar, David? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I agree with Jeremy that we have to give up hope. I struggle with giving up hope <laughs> myself. <laughs> I can't uh, because because I think I, I think that because um, <clears throat> you know I, I would like to think that I could I could say that I believe I see myself as a member of the working class I see myself as a member of precariat and I want to be a political and intellectual and cultural leader of that precariat as my career. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> But then on the other hand, I am, I become unemployed fairly regularly mm -hmm. and I uh, can't afford to pay rent and can't afford to buy things um, that my son needs for his development. So we have to, you know, contact my, my partner is a student. So we had to contact the student association to get them to pay for a device to allow, to help my son learn to talk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so... Mm -hmm. Then I think, well, I have to think about myself as still potentially employable on the tenure track or in a in a permanent position, a permanent staff position at the university would be would be fantastic. So something that allows me to be able to pay for those things that are needed in life and to not have to constantly deal with applying for jobs and so on. Mm -hmm. Now, being a tenure track faculty it's important to remember that being a tenure track faculty member is not like it was in the 60s and 70s when you get to sit around and think about ideas all the time so there's a ton of administrative bullshit you deal with there's a constant pressure to produce you are chosen 
not completely at random, but somewhat at random from a huge body of people who are uh, very smart and very capable and very hardworking. So you have to show that you're better, that, that you kind of deserve your position. So a lot of people end up um, with a, a lot of self-doubt, a lot of um, uh, struggles with their identity about, about who they are and, and whether they are, um, whether they live up to the, to the hype. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but um, it's very important that we be able to see ourselves. The, the, the university tries to individualize us and individualize our, our situations. And this is true for students too, that students, you go to, a student goes to university and most students will uh, try to perform uh, middle-class intellectual kind of thing. They try to be objective in their essays or they mm-hmm. try to, um, <clears throat> they try to, if they have a working class background, they don't mention that working class background. If they have a regional way of talking, they don't talk that way in their essays. So they, they try to perform this thing that we are evaluating them on their performance of and um, they don't talk about their debt. I don't talk about my working conditions because we're all part of this. Uh, we're all part of this fantasy mm-hmm. that we're dealing with an institution that is primarily or purely cultural. Mm-hmm. That's about upward mobility. That you know, you learn the names of a number of philosophers or uh, artists, and then you go out into the world and you are a highly employable person who understands cultural references. And that just doesn't doesn't exist. There's the those jobs exist, but they are given out. Those those qualifications are such basic qualifications compared to what you need to get that position, which is usually family contacts, some sort of yeah. social pre-existing social contacts. So um, it's very hard. I've, I've found when I when I'm teaching classes and I tell the students you know, your university education might not change your employability. Mm-hmm. So the students who are working at Staples or are working at Tim Hortons part-time and going to university, I say, you know, how would you feel if you went to university, you got really good grades and you were still working at Tim Hortons when you're done? You know, yeah. is, that, is that a failure, a personal failure? Is that a failure of the system? Is that something you could live with? You know, if, you, if you're a service worker or a retail worker for the rest of your life, how does that change your relationship with the university? How does that change your relationship with, with uh, your work? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, we saw the, the failed um, uh, campaign to certify uh, a union in, in uh, Amazon. Mm-hmm. In, was it in Georgia? Alabama. Alabama, yeah. And uh, so that, that reflects... Uh, a really challenging but really important process of trying to uh, push back against the, the idea that the gig economy and that the nature of employment now it, it, it is not it's not possible to organize. And I think the trying of organizing organizing we're trying to do. I mean, I'm already organized in my workplace, mm-hmm. and Bukwa is as well. You know, we're part of a collective agreement in our specific workplace, but. In my experience at, at my university, I belong to a, a very, uh, a very effective CUPE local um, that I'm active in, and that local is really good at catching, um, 
mostly is really good at catching administrative mistakes. So if somebody gets hired who shouldn't have been hired, it's easy to correct that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm able to fight back if I'm passed over for a job that I should have gotten, I can fight back and success, you know, success, successfully win. But that's very different than changing the nature of the employment or changing the nature of how we think about our position in the university. And the university still wants to see uh, part-time instructors as people who are either have failed to get a tenure track position and have been sort of relegated to that position, or they're doing it for a little while until they can get a real job. Um, So to think about that as your career, as what it is you do, Mm -hmm. is a, is a, is a, a radical act, right. In terms of, in terms of the way that the university tries to construct us in the same way as going to university, taking on debt and studying liberal arts is a radical act. If you don't think of it as if you're aware that it's not going to lead to um, a really good job, that's going to allow you to easily pay back your student loan. That is a radical act. You're, you're, you're doing something that you're not supposed to do. And, and uh, it's really important as instructors and as students to, to recognize each other, to be able to see our full selves and to be able to, in doing so, to be able to, to, to see the institution clearly and therefore see ourselves in our full courage kind of thing. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. Beautiful. I am going to have to call it because this has been already over an hour. Um, <laughs> we can definitely talk a little bit more, though, if you're both all right to stay a little longer, because we record extras that we put on our Patreon, which is, you know, like behind the paywall. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the main episode, I think we'll call it for now. Okay. Um, and thank, thank you, you so much you for guys- coming on to this episode. <laughs> Do you guys want to speak at all about uh, the Mayday uh, webinars? Yes. Yes, we should be. Real quick, so yeah. we can pitch that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, how do we start? <laughs> <laughs> how do we start? Yeah. The Canadian Historical Association, um, in response to the Precarious Historical Instructors Manifesto, launched a series of um, Zoom meetings which were uh, really great for connecting people. But there was some, um, there was a little bit of a problem with the way that some of the responses at least were framed in terms of the association being an association of um, full-time tenured faculty trying to figure out what to do with the social problem, the others, um, the contract instructors. And so we troublesome people exactly (laughs) so we as the troublesome people um are organizing our own event in which our experiences will be centered and it's in order to 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 reframe the conversation as being about us and our organizing Mm -hmm. and trying to build from our experiences of the university rather than than always positioning ourselves as a as an extra that needs to be either acknowledged or not acknowledged. And that's so, coming up this Friday? That's coming up this Friday at 1 p.m. Uh, it's hosted by the Wilson Institute 
of Canadian Studies, I think it is, um, for Canadian Studies maybe, at uh, uh, McMaster University. It's chaired by Ian Mackay, who's a star in the Canadian historical profession, but nonetheless, it will uh, feature prominently and center our voices as precariously employed uh, academics. Uh, building from that, anything can happen. We hope to build uh, what I call horizontal uh, solidarity with fellow precariously employed academic workers in every discipline, on every campus, in every province, and why not across the border to, uh, towards the U.S. And we will be linking all of this in the, the show notes. Yes, in the show notes, in the little box under the episode. And these are also recorded. There have been previous panels. Um, so, yeah, you know, you if can you can't... On the CHA website and on YouTube. Yeah. So if you can't make it Friday at 1 p.m., that is okay. You can always watch uh, on, on YouTube or on the CHA website. Uh, yeah, I think that's... Are we, are we launching a website? <laughs> we we... will... I think we, we are. There will be. That's going to be launched shortly after the webinar. So we'll have a website and social media and everything going up on Friday as well. Okay, that's so cool. That's so cool. <laughs> we are called. We are called the Precarious Academic, Academic Workers, Workers Network, yeah. which uh, which comes down to a nice acronym. That's PON, <laughs> and uh, there's a there's a French name and a French acronym that. That's uh, Réseau des Travailleurs Académiques Précaires, Retrap, yeah. that we're relatively proud of as well. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you again thank so much you. for coming on the podcast. And we will continue this conversation over on Patreon for anyone who wants to jump over and listen to, listen to some little bonus, bonus content. Thank you for listening to the Papiaga Project. And as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and her website for the most up-to-date happenings in the project. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It'll really help us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. And there's Patreon-exclusive merch. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.